We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 20. Rabbi Masya ben Harash Omer. Rabbi Masya, the son of Harash, says, Have a maktim b'shalom kal adam. You should initiate shalom, which means peace or greeting, to every person. Vehevi zanav le'arayos. And you should be a tail to lions. Ve'altihi rosh lishu alim. And do not be a head of foxes. If you could be the tail of the lion or the head of the foxes, you choose to be subservient to the lion, to be the tail of the lion rather than being the head of the foxes. So who was this Rabbi Masio ben Harash? So he's a really interesting character in the Talmud, not because there's a lot of information about him, but because he has a very unusual career. The Talmud tells us in the book of Sanhedrin, page 32b, that there's a principle that when you're in a particular town or locale, and that town has a rabbi, and you have a choice to follow the rulings of the local rabbi, or let's say the rabbi that you came from, your home base, the, the law is that you should follow the particular rabbi in whose town you're located. You know, when in Rome, follow the Romans, so to speak. And that's going to be a little bit more literal with our author of our Mishnah. So it tells us that the great Rebbe Eliezer, he was the rabbi in the city of Lod, in Lod, and therefore you follow his teachings when you happen to be in his locale. Even though maybe you'd come from a different place, doesn't matter. When you're there, you follow him. Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai was in Brochail, so there you follow him. It goes through all the rabbis. Rabbi Yeshua was in Petin. Rabbi Gamliel was the head of the academy at Yavne, and therefore, if you're in Yavne, you follow Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Tiva was the head of the town, the rabbi of the town in Brebrat. And it goes on a list of rabbis and the various places where they officiated, and it tells us when you're in their town, you follow their rulings. And then it tells us when you're in Rome, you follow Rabbi Masya, the author of our Mishnah. This reveals to us that of all places in the world, Rabbi Masya found a career as the rabbi and the head of the academy in Rome. In the lion's den, surrounded by all the Romans, at a time that we know that it was very tenuous or very dangerous for Jews, and the center of the enmity towards the Jews and the oppression of the Jews was in Rome, and he's the rabbi of the city, and he is the head of the academy in Rome. Uh, There's very few stories, episodes, vignettes about him in the Talmud, but it does tell us that when the rabbis would come to visit Rome, as we mentioned in the past, Rabbi Shimon, for example, he headed a delegation to Rome to go lobby the authorities to rescind a decree against the Jewish people. When he's there, the Talmud happens to record a conversation that he had with the local rabbi, Rabbi Masya ben Harash. And I think the fact that he is the rabbi in Rome reveals a lot about who he was and why this particular teaching was associated with him. So we're told one very famous story about him in in the literature. And it's such a wild story. It's really hard for us to really believe it because it, it shows that he's living on a different level, a different plane. 
So it tells us that he was once studying in the academy. He's the rabbi, of course, the town. And he's studying Torah, surrounded, of course, in Rome by all the wickedness of Rome and all the sinfulness of Rome. And he's studying Torah, a little oasis in the middle of Rome. And his face was as radiant as the sun. And his visage was like that of an angel. And the reason for this, says the Talmud, is because he used to not gaze at women. His beauty emanated from his holiness, and his holiness was manifested by the fact that he never would look at women. And you would imagine Rome is a place where there was a lot of licentiousness, and he was someone, even though he was in Rome, he wasn't just in this Jewish hamlet, a town full of rabbis, a town full of Jews. He was in Rome, but the Talmud testifies upon him that he had a certain radiance. His face was aglow because he would never look at illicit sights. The Talmud says that once the Satan saw him and he was envious of him, there was some angelic holiness that this rabbi had that the Satan, another angel, of course, was envious of. And he says, is it possible to have a person like this in such a situation and not sin? So he goes to speak to God. And he says to God, master of the world, what do you think about this rabbi, Rabbi Masya ben Kharash? What's your opinion of him? So the matter responds, in my eyes, he is a tzaddik gamur, a complete Righteous person. Totally righteous. There's nothing wrong with him. So the Satan, of course, is the angel that God appointed to try to lead us astray. And it's very important to remember that in Jewish theology, there isn't this counterforce to God. God is only, there's only one power. God is one and all the angels work for God. God created the Satan and Satan works for God. And his role is to try to tempt people to sin. So the Satan says to God, give me permission to tempt him to sin. God says, okay, but I know for sure that you're not going to win. I know for sure you're not going to win, but go ahead, go try it. So the Satan appeared to the great rabbi as a beautiful woman, so beautiful that since the days of Nama, the sister of Tuval Kayan, which we read about in the early parts of Genesis, that she was so beautiful, but this woman, this fake woman that the the Satan created, so to speak, was as beautiful as that, uh, more beautiful than any other woman since the times of Naamah, the sister of Tubalkain. And she appears in front of this great rabbi. So he turns his head away. Again, he is someone who perfected the skill of avoiding improper sights. So he turns his face away. So then the woman appears on the side, on his left side. So he turns his face back to the right side. And then he's moving his head back and forth and back and forth, avoiding this sight. And then the Talmud tells that he said, I am terrified that my Yetzirah, my evil inclination, is going to win over me and cause me to sin. And then he does something that I want to make it quite clear is inadvisable. But again, this is why this is such an otherworldly story. He takes some nails and he blinds himself. Which, of course, is shocking to us. 
But the Talmud says, it was shocking to the Satan. The Satan was so shocked and startled and taken aback, it ran back to God and says, I come defeated. And what did the Almighty do? The Almighty appoints the angel Raphael, which is the angel that the Almighty sends to heal people. It says, okay, go heal this great rabbi. He blinded himself, go heal him. So he appears to this rabbi and he says, I'm the angel Raphael, I'm coming to heal you. He says, no, I want to keep it the way it is. So he goes back to God and he says, I'm sorry, the guy does not want to be healed. So the Almighty says to him, okay, go back to him and tell him that I will promise, I will commit, I will pledge that he won't sin. And indeed, the angel returns to this great rabbi, he heals him, and he promises him he'll never sin in the future. And the Talmud concludes that from this story, we learn the importance of guarding your eyes against improper visuals. And by doing that, you're able to tame your Yetzirah. I was thinking, as I'm reading this story, of course, it's such a shocking story, but he is someone who is teaching us that every person we meet, we have to greet. When you meet someone, don't wait for them to greet you. Greet them ahead of time. He was not someone who lived in his own little bubble, lived in his own little world. He was someone who was amiable, who was gregarious, who was friendly. Yet he was able to greet people without ogling at them, without looking at them in an improper manner. And when I was researching this particular sage, I found that there are people who make a pilgrimage to his gravesite when they feel like they're struggling with guarding their eyes. I want to point out, just this is a broader topic, it's a very serious subject. The Talmud tells us that there is only one portal of sin, and that's the eyes. The Yetzirah, he could create a desire, but the only way that that could influence a person is if the person opens their eyes and allows that influence to be absorbed. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there is a certain process, so to speak, of the Yetzirah influencing a person. The eye sees... The heart desires and the body sins. And what this is telling us is that the body does not sin on its own. There has to be instigators. And the first initial step, so to speak, of the sin doesn't just happen spontaneously. It's when the eyes see and that causes the heart to desire and that causes the body to sin. When I was in yeshiva, it was common practice that yeshiva students, when they would go on public transportation, they would take off their glasses. Why? Because they don't want to see improper sights. And we believe that the Almighty gives us a force, a Yetzirah, that's trying to get us to sin. And I would say, especially for adolescent young men, this is the greatest challenge that they have. And one of the ways to address it is to try to stop the sin, so to speak, before it gets rolling. And if you see something your heart desires, then you're ready in the thick of war. 
Because now it's just a question of, will you sin, will you not sin? You have to develop real, strong, intestinal fortitude to be able to resist sin once you're in in the action, so to speak, once you're already engaged in the conflict. But if you protect your eyes, you're actually preventing the conflict from materializing, and that is a way to kind of avoid the challenge and not just to try to muster up the strength to triumph over the enemy. It's a very powerful lesson, a very interesting theme about this sage that he exemplified this idea of complete removal or complete guarding, shielding of one's eyes from seeing anything that was improper. Now, there are not many laws preserved by him uh, in, in, in the Talmudic and Mishnahic literature, and you would imagine that the reason for that is simple. He was someone who was removed from the rest of his colleagues. He's in Rome. And maybe, yes, they meet him every once in a while when the sages are sent there and they come back and they record and they document the discussions that they had and the laws that they studied. But he is away from the epicenter of Torah and therefore it is not surprising that we see very, very uh, a small paucity of his teachings preserved in the literature. One of the laws that are preserved is a question which I thought was interesting in the Talmud of the book of Yoma in the 80s. It talks about the cardinal principle that the Torah was given to us to live. And therefore, if there is a conflict between your life and Torah, you're going to save your life. Unless it's one of the three cardinal sins, unless someone says, hey, shoot someone or I kill you. Unless it's one of the you know, very severe sins that you have to even forfeit your life, but generally speaking, you preserve your life. So it's talking about what if someone is sick and they need to eat food, but they happen to not be surrounded by kosher restaurants. And they know if they don't have food right now, there's a potential they may just collapse and die. So the law is that you're allowed to eat and you're allowed to even be, be fed things that are not kosher. But then the question is, what if someone is bitten by a rabid dog? So the Talmud brings an opinion that says that what they used to do is feed the stricken man from the liver of that particular dog. Now, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physician, I don't know why this would work, but that was a common practice. However, the Mishnah says the consensus opinion is that it is not done. It's not permitted because it's actually not effective. Comes along Rabbi Masih ben Kharash, the author of our Mishnah, and he says, no, it's permitted. And the commentaries explain the disagreement, which I found this very fascinating, very, I would say, modern. From a medicinal perspective... Everyone agrees that feeding the stricken person from the lobe of the liver of the animal is actually not efficacious. But it would be used and almost like a placebo that people would think it would work and therefore it would work. And the question is, are you allowed to do a medical practice that's forbidden by the Torah under general circumstances? A a dog is not a kosher animal. 
And therefore, the daughter's liver is also not kosher. Are you allowed to do something to violate Torah to be able to get a placebo benefit from that violation? Which is a very interesting and, and modern debate, which I think would have probably modern ramifications. According to the consensus opinion, no, comes along the author of our mission. He says that it would be permitted, you would be allowed to feed this non-kosher liver of the animal that bit the person to try to find a cure, even if it's a placebo. And he teaches us this following idea. Again, a short, sweet Mishnah comprised of two general principles, three clauses. Number one, greet every person before they greet you. Don't wait for them to greet you and then you respond initiate peace overtures. And all the commentaries bring the testimony of Rabbi Yochanan in the Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan said that in his entire life, no one ever greeted him before he greeted them. He was always the initiator of peace overtures, even for non-Jews in the marketplace. That's the words of the Talmud. So he's in the marketplace. There's lots of people around. And these are not natural allies, so to speak. He's still greeting everyone and no one could beat him to greet them, which is a fascinating idea to show how a true Torah scholar is someone uh, who was identified and who, you know, who has compassion and sympathy and empathy for the people around them. You think about it, they're a great Torah sage. What should they be doing? They should be studying Torah. That's what we would think. And of course, Rabbi Yochan was someone who did study Torah all the time. In fact, we're told about him that he never walked for four amos, for four cubits without studying Torah. Yet, that doesn't necessitate that he wasn't involved with people, he didn't care about people, and didn't have a positive relationship with people. And even the Gentiles in the marketplace, he would greet them with peace. So that's the first idea, or at least the, the general interpretation of the first idea. And the second idea is that when you have a choice, you could be the tail of the lion. Or you could be the head of the fox. Of course, the lion is the top of the food chain, the king of the jungle. It's the greatest. But you're just the tail of the lion. You're the weakest part, the most minor part of the fiercest animal. Or the other option is, you could be king of the fox. You could be part of the the lower cohort, but you could be the king of the lower cohort. Which one is preferable? Here we're told it's better to be the tail of the lion than the head of the fox. One of the commentaries brings the following idea. The Jewish Supreme Court is comprised of 71 sages. But there is a seniority. There's a hierarchy. There's the the head of the Sanhedrin. He's the absolute greatest judicial personality in the land. And then there's the most minor, the most junior of the justices, number 71. But how do you nominate the next justice in line? And the way it was done is that there were three smaller courts, each comprised of 23 justices. And they were all apprentices, so to speak, of the Supreme Court. And there was also seniority amongst those 69 lower court justices. So we have three courts of 23 for a total of 69, 
plus one court of 71. So there's 140 sages in this academy. But there's seniority. The way it works is like this. When someone retires or passes away from the high court, everyone moves up a slot. If you were on the lower court, but you were the highest member of the lower courts, you would be elevated. You would be promoted to be the lowest member of the highest court. And everyone would move up a seat. And then within that lowest court, all 68 other members of the lower courts would each move up a slot and then they would try to find the greatest, most talented layperson to join the lowest, lowest court, the most junior of the junior courts. But that's an idea here. Yes, you were previously the king of the minor leagues. You were number one out of 69 justices on the lower courts, and now you're the lowest level. You're the lowest level of the Supreme Court, but it's better to be on the lowest level of Supreme Court than the highest level of the more minor court, the lower court. And of course, this would apply, I think, today. You know, to be a member of the Supreme Court is the greatest distinction that a jurist can have. And even if you are, you know, the king of the appellate court or the appeals court or any other court, to be in the Supreme Court is, even if you're a, the most junior member, that, of course, is a greater honor. Now, the commentaries as they are wont to do, they give us different interpretations of this Mishnah. So the simple interpretation is that whenever you meet someone, greet them before they greet you. You should be someone who is who's outgoing, who's amiable, who's friendly, who's always greeting people and not just waiting for them to greet you and then responding, then reciprocating. But there's another point. And this, I think, may be very relevant for us. The word shalom means a greeting, but it also means peace. When there is a lack of peace, when there is a conflict, when there's, God forbid, a fight, when there's a disagreement, someone needs to initiate peace. And here we're told, if you have a disagreement, if you have a fight, if there is disharmony, don't wait for your, so to speak, opponent, your counterpart to initiate it. You should initiate it. And you know what? You may be right. And you may feel that there is a deep injustice. I'm right. They're wrong. And therefore, they should apologize to me. I'm not going to apologize to them. What are we told in this Mishnah? precede every person with peace. Every person. Even someone who has wronged you. And you know what? You may be right. But don't wait for them. I think this is very good advice for all people. You have a spouse. Someone that you choose to share your life with. This is the person that is you. Part of you. But every spouse's, you know, things come up and temper sometimes flare. And then there's the Mexican standoff. Who is going to be the one to initiate peace? I was told that don't ever go to sleep in a fight. Because these fights, if they linger, God forbid, it could get serious. And that would be unfortunate. And sometimes the smallest things, if we have the pride of saying, well, I'm right and they're wrong... They should come apologize to me. The little things 
can mushroom into bit things, and then you're going to lose a lot more than you could potentially gain. How many families are torn apart because of this silly pride? They apologize because they did something wrong. As if suddenly we're so fastidious about justice. And you know what? What happens when someone does initiate peace? And they say, you know what? I I apologize. I apologize. The other person may quite likely say, you know what? I wasn't exactly in the right here. And what do you have? You have love. You have peace being restored. You have friendships being restored. You have amends. And that's what you wanted. So who cares if your pride is dinged a little bit? What a valuable lesson. Now, when he's telling us here to honor every person, greet every person, initiate peace with every person, it's interesting to point out, and the commentaries point this out, that there is a little bit of a yin and yang in this Mishnah. The Mishnah is telling us, initially, promote peace, initiate peace. If you're in the marketplace, and you're, after all, a great scholar, don't say, let them come to me. Initiate peace. Initiate greeting. Reach out to people. However, there is a difference between who you accord honor to and who you are as an individual. Don't get the misimpression that because you are being encouraged here, you're being coaxed to greet everyone, even the small people, greet everyone. Don't think that they are your true colleagues. There's almost like the two parts of the mission are opposites. On one hand, we're told every person that you meet, greet them, give them honor, elevate them. However, the second part of the mission is who is your crowd? What is your identity? When you choose your friends, when you choose your circle, who should you choose? You have options. You have the fox, you have the lion. You're kind of straddling those two worlds. You could kind of veer up, you could veer down, but then you'll be the king of the castle, the small castle, if you will, you'll be the king of the fox. You may think, hey, Rabbi Masia is telling us that I should be engaged, involved with everyone, even the small people, even the Gentile in the marketplace. Well, maybe then I should associate with them. I should be the head of the fox. Don't get that mistake. You have to develop your two identities, so to speak. You are someone who are always trying to be more ambitious, always trying to be aspirational. If you could get part of this lion, if you could associate with people that are more intelligent than you, that are more advanced than you, that are holier than you, that are more righteous than you, do everything you can to jump aboard that ship because they're going to uplift you. However, don't get the misimpression to say, I'm part of the lion's. I'm not dealing with those foxes down there, down the block. I'm going to walk aloof. I'm in tra- Let them come to me. I'm after all part of the line. No, greet them with peace, initiate peace, give them honor, even though you are from a more rarefied class. I saw one of the commentaries say a very powerful idea related to this insight. You have the lion, you have the fox. Two animals. The lion, of course, the greatest of all the animals. The fox, it's clever. It's pretty good. 
but it's not a lion. When we're told here to be the tail of the lion and not the head of the fox, the subtext of this idea is that the tail of the lion is still a lion and the head of the fox is still a fox. And the way one of the commentaries presents this idea is a little bit surprising. I think it's very powerful. When there is something severe and fierce like a lion, don't discount the tail, so to speak, because the tail is part of this grander whole. Holistically, the tail is part of this lion. And the way he explains it is based upon a Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 75a. This is one of those teachings in the Talmud, though you hear it, you don't forget it very quickly. It tells a story of a man who became infatuated with a certain woman. And the doctors rendered their diagnosis and they said the only way to heal this person, he's so sick with infatuation. He's sick. If he, if he doesn't sleep with her, forget about it, he's going to die. And they bring this question to the rabbis. Are we allowed to permit this illicit behavior in order to save the person? And the rabbi said, no, let him die. Let him die and not be with this woman. So they go back to the doctor and say, okay, that's off the table. Is there anything else that we could do to heal this person? So the doctors think, you know what? He's so infatuated with her. If he sees her without any clothes on, maybe he could survive. So they run back to the rabbis and they say, okay, we have another solution. Maybe we could heal him by her revealing herself to him. Maybe that will solve his infatuation. The rabbis say, no, let him die and not have this woman be uh, disrobed in front of him. So they run back to the physician and say, is there anything else that you could come up with? Anything else to save this person from his infatuation? So the doctor thinks and he says, you know what? If you put a fence up and you put him on one side of the fence and you put her on the other side of the fence and you let them talk, don't see each other necessarily, but at least they could talk. At least they could schmooze with her. He could unburden himself to her. And maybe that will heal him. So this sounds like it's pretty innocuous, pretty inane. This sounds like it would be okay. The rabbis say, clearly, let him die and not have even the most minor of interactions with this woman. Again, the woman is not his wife, even if it means he dies. That's the story. And the Talmud analyzes the story. Who was this woman? We know the story. We know the story happened. But who was this woman? So one opinion is, well, she was a married woman. And she's married to someone else. And if she's married to someone else, she is not going to be used, so to speak, to heal some random person. That's the first opinion. The second opinion tells us that no, she was not married at all. She was, in fact, quite single. That's the second opinion. Thomas says, wait a minute, if she was married, it makes a lot of sense. She's a married woman after all. How could we take a married woman and, and you, she's designated for one man, not for the other man? That makes a lot of sense. But if she was single, why are we being so stringent? What's the big deal? Let her schmooze with him. 
Let them frolic a little bit together. We'll heal the guy. It's not the worst sin in the world. What's really wrong with it? We'll solve the problem. Why is it so bad? So Thomas trying to figure out, like, according to this opinion, we know the story's true, but we don't know exactly the details. But according to the opinion that says that she was single, what's so bad about it? So Thomas gives two answers. Answer number one is, it doesn't look good for the family. For the family and the, the greater family of this person, that, that the daughter is being used by another man for his purposes, it doesn't look good. It doesn't bode well for the family. First opinion. Second opinion is, so that Jewish girls should not be used in a way that's not befitting, that's not becoming of princesses. We're a nation of kings, a nation of queens, a nation of princes, prince and princesses. And to take a princess and to use her in this way, it's unbefitting of a Jewish woman. That's the story. And the Talmud analyzes the story and says, wait a minute. If she's single, and this man is so obsessed with her to the degree that he's ill, I have a simple solution. Let them get married. And then when they're married, there's nothing sinful about it. In fact, it's a mitzvah for a husband and wife to be together, spend time together. Everything is permitted. Everything's in fact a mitzvah. So why don't we just solve the problem in the most natural way? He's in love with her. Let's see if they can get married and maybe something good will emerge from this infatuation. So Talmud gives us a wonderful answer. It says that, no, it wouldn't even help. Why? This man is infatuated with this woman. But stolen waters are sweet. That's the quote of Breen's, a verse in Proverbs. Forbidden fruit is sweeter. That's the idea. The only way to resolve, to mollify his desires, if it's done in some illicit way, if there's something sinful, so to speak, about it. But once it's married and it's kosher and she's permitted to you, then it's much less appealing, which is a very powerful idea. But let's just see how this connects before we analyze the story. This particular story sounds quite draconian. We have a man who's ill. And the doctors are pretty convinced that if we don't heal him, he's going to die. And what do we need to do to permit it? So we started off, well, maybe like they should sleep together. That sounds like it's too much. Okay. But let her be revealed in front of him to save a life. Isn't that worth it? To speak on either side of a fence? That seems so minor and so innocent, why is there this draconian ruling, let him die and not allow them to have this seemingly innocent conversation? This Mishnah reveals to us the answer. The tail of the lion is also a lion. If we have a severe sin or a severe immorality, this man, he, he needs to take this woman for him, for his own purposes, for his own illicit purposes. The most severe manifestation of that, it makes sense to us, that let him die. 
That made sense to us. But here we're told, regardless of the relative severity within a given sin, a lion is a lion is a lion. And the second we say, we're going to try to tame the lion, because it's just the tail. Tail doesn't bite me. Just the tail. We have to realize the tail is attached to those ferocious jaws that can rip us apart. And therefore, if we start to give an inch in these matters, if we start to yield and we say, hey, it's just the tail of the lion, what's the big deal? We don't realize what's going to happen because the second we permit the lion, the lion comes and attacks and it will be quite ferocious and painful, which I think is a very powerful, a useful lesson to us that we have to realize that the second we open the can, so to speak, on one thing, everything that's related to that one thing is already negotiable. It's already on the table. And if we say, hey, it's a lion, and even though this is the most minor part of the lion, once we talk about the tail, we're talking about the lion in general, that attitude prevents us from being eaten alive. Now, because we're quoting this Talmud, I saw a very interesting Kabbalistic idea I want to share. The Talmud says that forbidden fruits are sweeter. Why are forbidden fruits sweeter? So the way the Talmud frames it is that when the temple was extant, that wasn't true. But since the temple has been destroyed, forbidden fruits sweeter. Only sinners really have a good time. So I saw a very interesting Kabbalistic idea that there were parts of the process of the, of the protocol in the temple that was there to elevate the sexual arena, so to speak. And the way it's described in, in the Kabbalistic sources is that the Eight Sahara, so to speak, the drive for, for sexuality, it exists in a holy form and in an unholy form or, or a sinful form. And when the temple was extant, the work in the temple, particularly the work of the Ketoros, the incense, and the pants of the priests, that the, the power of those particular parts of the temple was that it elevated the holy part, so to speak, of sexuality. And once the temple's destroyed, that's gone, and therefore it's only the forbidden fruit that are elevated, and consequently we have this asymmetry where the sinners, so to speak, are having a better time, which is really interesting. And I think that does lead us to a very important question, and that is that if you read this Talmud, of course, we have the larger lesson of a lion is a lion is a lion, the tail of the lion, the ferocious fangs of the lion, that's all a lion. That's the lesson that we, we talked about. But we also address the following issue, or the following issue is raised. A man has a wife, and that hopefully is an enduring relationship. But we're told that there's something sweeter about the forbidden fruit. And therefore, a man's wife is permitted to him, 
But how do we mitigate the problem that once she's permitted, it's less sweet and therefore, in effect, the neighbor's wife is always going to be more desirable because she's forbidden and your wife is permitted. So I just want to, just because we mentioned this Talmud, I want to throw out an idea that the, that the Talmud elsewhere says. The Talmud elsewhere addresses this question. The Talmud says that the reason why God made a mitzvah that teaches us or that instructs us that for various times in a, a monthly cycle, a, a man's wife is prohibited to him. The reason why we have that the when a woman menstruates, she must separate from her husband. What's the reason? Why would God do that to us? The reason, says the Talmud, is because that creates forbiddenness. That creates that your wife is now forbidden fruit. She's off limits to you. So in effect, you are circumventing this problem that exists. A man's wife, well, before you before you were married, forbidden fruit, she was very desirable. You got married, she's permitted, says the Talmud. Again, it's a quote in, in scripture. She is now permitted and consequently less desirable. That seems to be counterproductive. What's the solution? The solution is that you're going to game the system, so to speak, and now make your wife forbidden to you for two weeks out of the month, let's say. And that is always going to be this refresher to keep things fresh and exciting throughout uh, throughout your marriage. And it's not going to be like what sadly happens to a lot of marriages, that it becomes um, uh, the bedroom life, shall we say, has a precipitous decline after things are no longer new and exciting. So we have this amazing Mishnah. We're talking about a sage in Rome, of all places. Imagine what kind of job that is. And you kind of wonder how he ended up there. What kind of scenes were present in his daily commute? He was someone who guarded his eyes. He was someone who, who is the exemplar of maintaining control over what he sees. Nevertheless, he is someone who greeted every person before they greeted them. And he also teaches us that to be the tail of the line is preferable than to be the head of the fox. And like I said, there's a lot of different interpretations of what that means. But maybe we can speculate this great rabbi, you don't imagine he was born in Rome. Maybe he was. I don't know. I don't think the Talmud addresses his backstory to that degree. But he was someone who was familiar with the great sages in Israel. And he was almost like on his own in a little island in Rome. And you would imagine he was the greatest Torah scholar on the continent. That's what you would imagine. He's one of the sages. He's quoted in the Mishnah. A great sage! In Rome, he is the greatest head of foxes there ever was. And he perhaps is lamenting his career choices. Perhaps he's saying, you know what? If I was in Israel, I would be the greatest sage in the land. Maybe I couldn't hold a candle to Rabbi Meir, to Rabbi Akiva, to Rabbi Shimon. Maybe not. But ultimately, holistically, I would have been better off to be surrounded by the scholars and the sages of the land 
in Israel, even if I wasn't the king, the greatest rabbi, but maybe that is the inference, kind of his personal story and his enduring lesson to us are connected. That because he left the sages and went from, he became the head of the foxes, but maybe he's advising us to make a different choice and to choose to be the tail of the lions. Who knows? But that's the idea of this Mishnah. Very powerful a Mishnah with lots of different ideas. Uh, my email address is always, as you know, rabbiwobajima.com. You can always email me with any questions.